0: Okay, we are in First uh, Samuel, First Samuel, chapter fourteen, and we had covered a portion last time in First Samuel fourteen, where we talked a lot about the vow that Saul had made, and that was First Samuel fourteen twenty four through thirty five, and I said that we'd come back and look more at the battle. And so we're going to just back up a bit, but last time we had related that, in fact, to legalism. And I had mentioned, you know, the drinking of wine and, and how we are not, not, uh, there's, we're not forbidden from drinking wine, not at all. However, I told you that I made a personal choice that I don't put upon anyone else many years ago, 20, 29 or 30 years ago, not to drink any wine, not to drink any alcohol, so I don't drink alcohol and I'm glad that I made that decision because what it's done is it's, um, you know, a lot of times what, what parents do in, in moderation, children will end up doing in excess. And uh, it's a tremendous waste of money. You know When I see these guys go out to restaurants with, with other faculty members and, and they'll spend as much on wine as they will on the food. And I'm like, how can you do this? This is just, just you know, grape juice with ethanol added. <laughs> and, and you're paying all that money. And, uh, but anyway, um, and, then, and then I had one person point out afterward, and I wanted to mention this, is that the thing about alcohol is it does sneak up on people. There's many people that never intend to overindulge, but it does sneak up on them in, in, in their lives. So I wanted to mention that. Okay, in First in, uh, Samuel chapter 14, reading from verse, let, let's pick it up again. From verse 13, then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet. From verse 13, and his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer. But some uh, and his armor bearer put some to death after him. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about twenty men, within about half a furrow in an acre of land. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it became a great trembling. Now Saul's watchman in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went here and there. Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now, and see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. Then Saul said to Ahiah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. While Saul talked to the priests, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priests, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle, and every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around the camp, even... They also turned to be with Israel, with the Israel uh, turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beth Avon. Okay, so what we will do is, is, is what I always try to do is, is look at what the scriptures say look at the context of what the Scriptures say and talk about some of that and then bring that into a message of how it could apply to ourselves. So if this, this battle, remember there is this stalemate and finally Jonathan went and he attacked this garrison, this garrison and he, they, they defeated the garrison and that was just the beginning and then all of a sudden in verse 15 the earth began to quake with a great trembling. So God, God followed up Jonathan's attack, where they killed about 20 people to take the garrison, with an earthquake. And it says that, that uh, uh, there was a great trembling, the earthquake, so that it was a great trembling. So, in other words, it wasn't just a typical earthquake, it was a great trembling. You know, typical earthquakes, you know, the earth shakes and, you know, you get back on with your life. I, I, we lived in California and I remember, you know, there were earthquakes and, you know, the building would start shaking and rocking and then... Okay, and you get back on with your life. But this was something that was a great earthquake, it says. A great trembling. And it was, it was so alarming to the Philistines that it caused great confusion. And in verse 16, Now Saul's watchman at Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they, were here, they went here and there. So what was happening is the Philistines there was all this confusion in the Philistines' camp and all this terror and their swords started going against each other in this mass confusion. And then we see that Saul calls together and he, sus- he suspected that this had been instigated, that this had been started by some of the Israelites, but he didn't know who. So they said, you know, who isn't among us that should be? And they said, well, the only one missing is, is Jonathan and his armor bearer. And Saul knew, you know, Jonathan, his son, that, all right, well, my son does things like this. Uh, he was a very bold warrior. So in verse 18, he calls Ahia. And so we had seen Ahia in verse 3 of that same chapter, where he was now wearing the linen ephod. So he was the high priest. There was a linen ephod that they would wear. And on that was the breastplate. Within the breastplate, were what the, what's defined in the scriptures is the urim and the thummim. And it was a series of lights, and based on those series of lights, they would discern God's will. They would ask God just yes and no questions. It had to be a yes or no question, and the lights would light up, the, the stones would light up, and be the answer from God, yes or no. So he calls Ahia, and it says here, bring the ark. Well, the ark really wasn't here. The ark was not kiriath Jerem. We know that from other passages. It says in verse 3 that Ahia was, was wearing the, the ephod at that time. So why does it say Ark? Actually, the Septuagint doesn't say Ark, it says the ephod. Now, we, our Bible is translated, and our Old Testament is translated from the Mesoretic text. The Mesoretic text is about 1000 A.D. It is the text, the same text that the Hebrews, that the Jews use. So if you were to go into a synagogue today, pick up, The the Hebrew Bible in the synagogue, that would be the Mesoretic Text, translation from the Mesoretic Text. About 1000 A.D., that translation. The Septuagint is from about 200 B.C., about 1200 years earlier. There was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So they translated the Greek, they had other manuscripts, and they translated it into Greek. That is 1200 years before the Mesoretic Text, and that says Ephod. So, it could well be that that the more accurate representation is indeed ephod, which matches up with other scriptures, because we know that the ark was several miles away. It would have taken them a long time to get the ark and bring it. it. And so, he he, he starts to inquire of the Lord, and then as they're doing it, it says in verse 19, While Saul talked to the priest, the commotion in the camp of the Philistine Philistines continued and increased. So Paul said, So Saul said to the priests, Withdraw your hands." So in other words, he says to the priests, Never mind. There's too much going on here. I mean, what was going on was, was amazing. And so the Philistines were killing each other. So much so, it says in verse 21, Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around in the camp, even they turned to be with Israel with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So, among the Philistines, there were some traitors. There were some Israelite traitors, and it refers to them as Hebrews, because in the eyes of a Gentile, in that day, Jews were always called Hebrews, and they referred to themselves as Hebrews among the Gentiles. So, if you remember back in the book of Genesis, that, for example, uh, Joseph, even when he was second to Pharaoh, his family was there, and it says that, they served the meal, but the Egyptians didn't eat with them because it was, it was loathsome. It, it was to eat with a Hebrew, for an Egyptian to eat with a Hebrew. So the way that they were referred to by Gentiles was Hebrews. And these were traitors. These were Israelites that were serving in the Philistine army. And this happens all the time. I mean, you see this in World War II. We had Germans serving in our army. I mean, and so the Germans certainly viewed those people as traitors. We didn't view them as traitors. Uh, And so they started turning on the Philistines. And then it says in verse 22, And then the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim. And that comes back from from chapter 13, verse 6. It says, When all the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. So, um, so you see that, that uh, there were traitors that were, started fighting on Saul and Jonathan's side, and then were, there were the cowards. It doesn't refer to them as Hebrews, they were just hidden, and they were just cowards, and so it says they came out and started in this battle too. So, God was accomplishing a great thing. Then last time we covered verse 24-35, through 35, where it talked about the vow that Saul had made, he had made a vow that was a foolish vow, that his son Jonathan didn't know that Saul had made this vow, saying, whoever eats any food until I've avenged myself. So through the night, until I've avenged myself, whoever eats any food will be, uh, um, will be cursed. He didn't know that Jonathan had violated that. He didn't know that there was a violation in that, and so he, he came with this this uh, curse and Jonathan says, you know, I didn't know anything about this. That resulted in then the breaking of the Mosaic law, because they were they were jumping upon those animals and partaking of them. So then, if you look in First Samuel chapter chapter fourteen, verse thirty six, let's pick it up there. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and take the spoil among them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, Let us draw near to God. Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. Saul said, Draw near here, all you chiefs of all the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened. For as the Lord lives, whoever delivers, For as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, though it is Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But no one of the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Saul said, cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son, and Jonathan was taken. So what's happening here is that Saul says, let's go and attack the Philistines. So it was nightfall now, because remember, they had jumped upon the animals at sundown, because it was now the next day they started eating these animals without letting the blood drain. And then they set up an altar for them to do that. And then Saul says, let's attack the Philistines now while it's dark, which is an unusual way for them to attack. Generally, attacks weren't done at night. But he says, let's go after them. They're fleeing. And then he stops. He says, let's inquire of God. He says, so, so he inquires of God. The Urim and the Thummim. It can only be a yes or no answer. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But God doesn't answer. So the, there's no light lighting up. There's no answer from God. And so Saul realizes there's some sin that's been committed. Well, one of the sins that was committed is that Saul made this crazy sort of vow, and he wasn't fulfilling what God had wanted him to, him to fulfill, which is the destruction of the Philistines. And so, he says, let's investigate what the problem is. Somebody must have broken the vow that I made that said nobody should eat. He had no idea, though, that it was, it was his own son that had broken the vow. He said, let's cast lots. Well, casting lots was used in those days for discerning, again, what God's will is. And you say, well, that's not really, you know, a good way to do it. Actually, the Scriptures in the Old Testament cast lots. Proverbs 16.33 says that the casting of lots is the way you find out the will of God. They used the same casting of lots in the New Testament. Prior to the coming of the Spirit, they cast lots in the book of Acts to discern who was going to be the next, the next apostle. And the lot, it says, the lot fell to Matthias. Because, uh, um, because, because uh, um, Judas had now hung himself, and so the lot fell to Matthias, and they put the requirements of an apostle was they had to have been with Jesus, and it says Matthias had been with Jesus throughout his ministry, so he was chosen, had to have seen Jesus. That was the requirement for an apostle in the book of Acts. And that's why Paul qualified, because he saw Jesus in his resurrection, where Jesus appeared to him in the road, on the road to Emmaus. So, after that though, after the coming of the Spirit in the book of Acts, never was the lot used again. So it's, and in the epistles, in our instruction of how to discern God's will is never told to us to use the lot again. And But at this time they used the lot, and God used the lot so that in fact it was... Saul, said, Saul was so convinced it wasn't he or his son, that had violated this. He said, Jonathan and I will stand on one side and all of you on the other side. You, the guilty party. And it turns out the lot comes to their side. So he says, well, choose between me and my son Jonathan. And it's Jonathan. And then Saul says to him, um, in verse 43, Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, "...Indeed, I tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I must die." And Saul said, "...May God do this to me, and more so also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan." But the people said to Saul, "...Must Jonathan die, who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel?" Far from it, as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So, Saul made this vow. There's no problem with taking a vow, but we're not to put our vows upon other people. He did that nonetheless as king. And now, for breaking a vow, you don't... It's not a death penalty for breaking a vow like that. But then Saul says, he says, in verse 39, he said, As the Lord lives who, who delivers Israel, though it is Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. So now, he goes from this foolish vow to going even another step saying, Whoever violated this vow is going to die. There's no need for that. Turns out, the one who violated the vow was Jonathan. And he says to Jonathan, what have you done? Jonathan said, I didn't know about your vow. I was out fighting in this garrison. And I just took a little honey and put it to my mouth. But you had just said that as the Lord lives, who's ever violated this vow must die. Here I am. Kill me. So Saul knowingly disobeys God and was willing to execute his son who unknowingly violated the vow. Do you see how this thing has snowballed? And now, the people aren't going to allow this. I mean, they stand between Saul and his own son. And say, no, nobody's going to take his life. I mean, Saul, God has brought about a great deliverance. It was never God's intent to have Jonathan killed here. This was the, the workings of this man's own mind. And the progression of this. And as a result of this, in verse 46, you know, all this time passes... And the Philistines are able to escape to their city. And they're not able to kill them. And you know who ultimately kills Saul and Jonathan? Philistines. Because they had not executed what God had given them to execute. These guys end up rebuilding. And several years later, it's the Philistines that kill Saul uh, and Jonathan and one other of his sons. So... Let me just finish up this chapter and then we'll, then we'll talk about the lesson of this. Verse 47. Now Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel and he fought against all the enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hand of those who plundered them. Now the, son of Jonathan, the sons of Jonathan were... Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, Malkishua, and the names of the two daughters of these, the name of the first one, Merab, and the name of the younger one, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimas. And the name of the captains of the, army of, of, the captain of the army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel, and the Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any mighty man or any valiant man, he attached him to his staff. So you you see that that this gives us a snapshot of Saul's family. This is not his entire family. Like it doesn't mention the child named Ishbosheth, which was one of Saul's son who actually... When David becomes king, Ish-bothet, Ishbosheth in the north becomes king, just for a short amount of time. Uh, uh, and this, this one son, Ishvi, has another name, Abinadab, sometimes referred to as Abinadab. He mentions the two daughters, uh, Merab, who had been given to David, who had been promised to David, to whoever killed Goliath, and then was given to another man, and then Mikal, who then David had killed, uh, 200 Philistines and delivered their foreskins to Saul to get this, this woman, Michal, to be his wife. <clears throat> but this, this, this other one, this younger one, Michal, became David's wife. But you see the snapshot of this family, but look at what his draft policy was. Any valiant man or any mighty man that he saw, he attached him to his staff. If there was a valiant man or a mighty man, he brought him right into his army. And this is what, exactly what... what uh, um, what Samuel, the prophet, had said. If you get this king, if you do this, he is going to take your sons and make them part of his army. Any valiant man or any mighty man became part of the army. Can you imagine that, that, if, you, if, that, that if you have talented men, men of great talent, every one of them, you attach them to military staff? I mean, it really depletes the country and what can happen in the country. Because you, you, you can't just take all the smart ones and Put them in the army. You want some smart ones in the army. You want some you know, running businesses and some doing other things. <clears throat> but I want to get back to this lesson about what Saul did. This vow that just was a foolish vow, and then it just kept propagating and propagating without dealing with it and just saying, Look, you know, guys, I took this vow. It was wrong. You know, I you know you were really hungry, you had to go 18 miles, 20 miles fighting, and he couldn't eat because of my foolish vow, I'm sorry. But instead of that, he tries to cover the whole thing up saying, well, God's not speaking to me because someone broke this vow. And therefore, whoever broke the vow is going to die. To the point of wanting to kill his own son. So what happens is, when we do wrong, sometimes to cover it up or to walk in pride, we, we don't want to address this. We don't want to deal with it. And I don't know why we as believers are so often, so slow to ask forgiveness and move on past something. And the older you get, the harder it gets. It doesn't, it's not like, oh well, when I'm more mature I'll be better. No, you will be worse. The older you get, the older the Christians I see, the more that they are unable to ask forgiveness. And say, you know, I just blew it. There have been occasions where I have, I have just brought in my research group and I just call them all in. And I say, you know, I got something to tell you. And I'll apologize to the whole group. I say, you know, I, I did this or I said this and this was wrong. And it's very hard to do. It really is hard to do. But once I do it, it's so freeing. And and look in in Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14 addresses this. And it it, it really addresses this in a nice way, particularly in, in, in the NIV. So someone who's got the NIV, read out Proverbs 14 verse 9. Loudly. Fools mock at making amends for sin. So the Bible says, a person who says, oh, no need to make amends for that. No need to confess that and make an amend. No problem. Come on, what's the big deal? It, it, it's forgotten. Fools mock at making amends for sins. You know, I had, in, in a period of a couple of years, I had apologized twice to my research group for saying things I shouldn't have said. You know, I... I as a believer, there's certain things that I can say and certain things that I shouldn't say. And one guy came up to me and says, you know, you're always apologizing to your group. I said, you know, and this was one of the group members, one of the students in the group. I said, well, you know, I deserved an apology. I do wrong. He says, well, it'd be better if you didn't do wrong to begin with. I said, yeah, I know, but we all do wrong sometimes, don't we? We all do. And uh, there have been times where I brought in just different... You know, if, if I said something inappropriate in the hearing of, of, say, four group members, I'll bring them back to my office. And this happened, I don't know, a year or so ago. I said something where, to you know, I spoke about someone else in the group in a way that I shouldn't have spoken about them in the hearing of four other group members. And and so um, I called those four people in, and I said what I said about so and so was wrong that person is a member of my research group and I never should have said that about them as I never should say anything about you folks to, to other people in the group. And I apologize to them. And what happens is you get in these situations like, like Saul did and, and we'll do some wrong and then the thing begins to take on a life of its own and it starts to drive us and we start doing things and saying things to guard our pride and to guard our position, and this is why the older we get, the harder it is, because we get to certain levels where we have a big office and wooden furniture and all these things, and you know i I shouldn't have to apologize to students, you know there's just you know it's a sub form of life. you know I shouldn't have to do this and it. I I find that I start justifying in my own mind how I'm right. I was right. You know, Watchman Nee said something. This is this amazing Christian man who spent 25 years of his life or so in a Chinese prison and ended up dying in, in a Chinese prison. And he says, what does it gain if I prove myself right? If I have lost my brother? What does it gain? if I've proved myself right, if I have lost my brother. And to show you how this can take on a life of its own, I, I was on the board uh, of this, this, uh, this company, and the, the chief executive officer, who was the face of this company, said something about the executive vice president. To other people that was really mean, that accused him of, you know, of, of lying and of deceiving him, well, facts were presented that that I think showed that there was no lying or deceiving that went on. But the CEO did concede, okay, you know, you know such and such happened, but I do realize now that the executive vice president, didn't mean harm by what he did. But he wouldn't get beyond that point. And there were other people that the the CEO had said things to that were really offended by this. Really offended and said, you know, you've got to apologize. At least say you're sorry for what you've done. At least this guy dug in his heels as the CEO and founder of this company. I mean, just dug in his heels and wouldn't move. And it was like, arms of his company were being lopped off. And he wouldn't move. And he kept justifying himself. And I, and I said to him, you, you know, he wrote a letter to address him. I said, you know, and he showed it to me. I said, this is a great letter. However, if you would just write this one sentence in here, I think everything would be resolved. If you would just write, I regret the things that I said about so-and-so. If you just write that one sentence in it, I regret the things that I said, I think everything will be done and gone away. But no, he wouldn't do it. He would not do it. And I'm telling you, it takes on a life of its own. And he had to just keep justifying himself. And I started to see this company and people that had been loyal to him just leaving. Just leaving. What would make a man do that? I'm telling you, this is the heart that we all have. What I am sharing with you is the heart of mankind. This is the heart that people have. And we have to war against this. You know, I got a phone call even this morning. and Somebody was telling me, you know, I, I, I shared with, with somebody about, about the Lord. You know, this person was going off in a direction that I felt was not right and I called them up and I shared with them and they were a little offended I said let me ask you this if you had somebody that you cared about and you saw them going in direction X and that was you you thought there was real danger there wouldn't you feel obliged to tell them and he conceded said okay I understand why you're telling me this." this is a 10 minute conversation that's it well that young person's father was so upset that I shared with them. So upset. And I said, you know, you, you know and I had gotten word that they were really upset that I had shared with their son. Now the son is 20 years old. Not a little kid. And he was going off in a crazy direction that I think is going to destroy his life. And I called him and spoke with him for 10 minutes. And, I, you, you know, I don't know how to be lovey-dovey. I'm just direct. I just tell him. And so, this person, you know, they told me, oh, that the father was really upset. And so, right away, I got angry. I said, All I did was call. I'm obliged to call. And they said, Would you call this father and talk with them? I said, Why should I? Why should I call him? You know, I didn't do anything wrong. And they said, No. I'll call him. I'll call him. And so, just this morning, you know, it was early in the morning. I, I, I called him, and, and uh, he wasn't there, but I left him a message. I said, you know, I felt obliged to share with your son. He's 20 years old. He's not a minor. I spoke with him for only 10 minutes. I've not emailed him. I've not harassed him. It was one 10-minute conversation. And I told him that I wouldn't be calling him again on this. Not at all. But if he wanted to talk, I was there. And I said, I am so sorry for having offended you in this. I didn't realize that I had done any wrong. But my natural tendency was immediately, no, I'm not going to call. You see what I mean? We have to be, as believers, God has called us to something much higher. Jesus clearly said, to whom much is given, much is expected. There is the obligation upon us, as believers, to take the higher road by lowering ourselves lower than the world does. It is our obligation to follow the One who gave Himself for us on the cross, to do what He did. We are obliged to do this. I still don't feel as if I was wrong for speaking to this young man, and I didn't know that I needed clearance from his father and the young man's 20 years old. And it wasn't like I didn't know the young man. And I still don't regret having spoken to him. But I regret that I have hurt this young man's father. That I am very sorry about. And had I, if I was able to do it again, I would certainly call the father first. We are obliged to take the high road by lowering ourselves. Lower than the world would go. This is what we are called to. Jesus expects more from us. And we say, well, that person never apologized to me. Exactly. That's why we are to initiate apologies and not to expect another in return. Well, no use in apologizing to somebody uh, uh, if if they're not sorry about what they did. Not so. Jesus went and he he begged God to forgive these people who were hurting him long before they ever asked God to forgive them. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, the people who are hanging Him on the cross. He calls us to a higher ground. And remember, in your life, and some of you are going to be CEOs and presidents and, you know, chief engineers and all of this stuff. And you're going to rise up to these levels and there's going to be people that you work for, you feel like, I can't go and apologize to all these people. Remember, as believers, that's what we're called to. And as we start digging our heels in the ground, we become like King Saul and we make the thing worse and worse and worse. Saul could have stopped the whole thing and said, you know, I, I made a vow and I sh- that I shouldn't have made. That's it. That's all he, he, he had to say. Probably God's not talking because I made a vow and put everybody under it and didn't communicate it to everybody. Or something. But you see what I mean? It just goes, just snowballs. <clears throat> Men do this. They, they, will, they will do wrong. Say, you know, say they'll have an affair. They'll, they'll have an affair and you confront them in it. And rather than to go and say, you know, you're right. You know, I, I need to go and let me go and counsel with the pastor in the church and with the church leadership and get into counseling and try to rebuild my marriage now because this is a serious thing. They say, well, I've done it. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm just. I'm like, how can you trash this woman that you've been with for 20 years and these children of yours? That you're just going to trash them for your pride? Well, you know, she hasn't been the greatest wife. Well, you haven't been the greatest husband either. Well, wake up and nobody's perfect. But why will you trash your family? And I see men do this a lot. Well, they trash their wife, they trash their kids. And they say, do you know what this is going to do to your children? And they'll trash them. Just because the thing takes on a life of its own, and rather than to go and repent. And there are steps you take. Repentance means turning. I did wrong, I turned the other way. Repentance means you turn around. That's what the word repentance means. And there are ways you do this. You confess it. You go to church leadership and you confess it. You say, I am sorry, I did this. And then as it affects other people, you you, you you make amends. It says fools mock at making amends for sin. Making amends for a, a lapse in a marriage covenant. I mean, it doesn't happen by walking up to your wife and saying, uh, gee, honey, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, I did this. You know, Forgive me. I said I'm sorry, right? It's done, right? Because I said I'm sorry. No, it's not done. There's a lot of amends that have to be made. There's a lot of rebuilding that has to be made because that's a really big one. That's not like... Forgetting to take out the trash. That's a really big one. You go into counseling. And I have good friends, good friends of mine in the church. That in, in both of these cases, the husbands are quite willing to go into counseling. But the wives are not. And one guy comes and I counsel with him. he says, you know, I haven't slept in the same room with my wife for four months. And she has nothing to do with me. And she sleeps in. I get the kids ready every morning. I take them to school. I feed them breakfast. I take them to school. She's still sleeping. I drop them off at school. I go to work. I work all day. She picks them up at 3 o'clock. I get home at 5.30. She gives them to me. And she goes out. And I said to Shireen, I said, call this woman and talk with her. She's your friend. This man is my friend. I'm hurting him." And this, I said to the man, were you willing to go into counseling? He says, yes, anytime, anytime. I beg her to go into counseling. So Shireen meets with this woman and she says, how are, how are you and your husband doing? Oh, we're fine. We're doing fine. I mean, just total lie. Total lie. Why do we do this? And remember, remember what I'm telling you this day. Be quick to go into counseling. I was talking with, with a, a, another guy and again, he's begging his wife to go to counseling, but she won't. She wants to go to a divorce court. He's saying, Go with me to counseling. Let's work through this difficulty. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Be quick. You, whoever you are, it can be the man, it can be the woman, whoever you are, remember in your marriage, you be the one who initiates the. say, let's go into counseling. Let's get some help. Everybody needs help in life. And it's not a shame to go and to apologize to an unbeliever. In fact, it's the biggest, the greatest way to draw an unbeliever to Jesus is go and apologize to them for something because they're so taken back. Because so few people in the world apologize. Go say, you know, I'm sorry, I've done this with my colleagues, my chemistry faculty colleagues. I said something in front of three of them that was inappropriate. I mean, in the world's eyes, it wasn't inappropriate at all. But as a believer, it was inappropriate. And I had a meeting with them and I said, I just want to apologize for what I said about... About, about this, and, and one guy didn't even remember it. Hey, what are you talking about? If you don't remember it, fine. The other guy said, no, I remember. Okay. And as believers, we are to be different and we are to initiate, or else what happens to Saul will happen to us. We'll lose our children, we'll lose our family, we lose our kingdom, we lose everything we work for. Everything we work for. I've seen guys... Work for 40 years to get to a place in the company. When, when you figure that, that they were 18, they started working their way through college to do this, do this. And then they'll lose it. Lose it. Get thrown out because they are unwilling to say, I'm sorry, I really blew it. If they just said that, they could retain their positions. This happens to the heart of man. Remember this message. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Oh God, you always show us things through your word. And I thank you for it. I thank you, Lord, that as we look in review at the life of King Saul and the way he blew it and his pride and his, his vows and his words and his unwillingness to repent. Father, I thank you that through all this we learn what not to do. Father, I pray for these young people that You protect them, protect their marriages, that they would learn to lower themselves lower than the others because that's what You did, Jesus. That's what You did by bearing one another's burdens and thus fulfilling the law of Christ. Lord, thank You for Your mercies in the name of Jesus. Amen.